at the end of the war, we've kind of looked briefly at the Holocaust. And once you get um, through the Holocaust, you start realizing that the Germans, especially at the end of the war, have pretty much seen the writing on the wall that this is not going to end well for them. So they start kind of ramping up the end of the Holocaust and the whole uh, how to deal with what they considered the Jewish problem and, and then moving towards the, the kind of devastation that was the total death of life at the end of the Holocaust. And so there's a point in April where, or even earlier in 1945, where the Allies have so drastically changed the scope of the war. Um, Russia's booking it to Berlin, the United States and the British and the Canadians and whatever other, other help they had on the Allied side was kind of pinning them in from the other side. And Hitler is essentially, his last couple of months is just in Berlin in a bunker. Um, and by the end of uh, April, uh, Hitler actually gets married to Eva Braun and they end their lives in, in the bunker uh, kind of in the same day. Um, by May, they get unconditional surrender. So if you're looking back at when that was all decided, that was decided back at Casablanca when the three big guys, uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, all sat down and decided that they were going to only accept unconditional surrender. Um, and so May 9th, 1945 becomes VE Day, uh, which is Victory in Europe Day. Um, but for the United States, at least, that wasn't really the end. I mean, obviously, you still had a lot of troops in that uh, sphere of the war. <clears throat> They're still going to be um, in Europe for quite a bit of time for a variety of reasons, including the Holocaust being one of them and kind of the cleanup that had to go on after the war was over um, and the amount of people that it was going to have to take to get them back uh, to the United States. The, um, the other side of the war is what we're going to focus on today. And one of the things that we start understanding in fighting the Japanese, and this goes back to the things that we talked about in lecture before, is that really the Japanese were a significantly more difficult uh, group to fight than the Germans, not necessarily because they were better fighters, but the way that they fought. So, um, you know, as we were fighting uh, using island hopping and going over the more defended islands and kind of taking the easier islands, we started getting to the point where there weren't any more easy islands to take. So we're pretty close to Japan. Um, and we also start shifting to uh, targeting cities and firebombing. So um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> show you a short clip. And if you're doing this on a podcast and you aren't able to see this and, and actually see it um, in person, then you're going to have to look this up on YouTube for yourself. And the best way to look it up would just be to look at... Uh, um, let me give you the actual search... If you just search fog of war firebombing, um, you'll find it. It's about a three minute clip. Um, I'm going to show you guys. Can you guys see the firebombing clip that I'm showing right now? Okay, so I'm going to show you this for about three minutes. I have to turn off the podcast because I don't know if I'm allowed to uh, project someone else's work. So I'm going to stop that and then I'll come back and restart that. Um, <coughs> as far as what we decide, especially since uh, what we found in um, Japan was that the closer and closer we got, the more difficult it was and the, the higher the casualty rates were for us. So um, 
by the time we get to Okinawa, even though it's off the coast of Japan, and it's not technically mainland Japan, it becomes really difficult. The casualty rates skyrocket compared to what we were getting um, beforehand. And like I said, we were kind of running out of relatively easy targets. I know that's kind of a bad way of describing it, but we were for a long time in the Pacific skipping the more difficult targets that's called island hopping so that we could actually kind of cut the head off the snake multiple times um, and essentially win a war of attrition against the Japanese so they can't refuel um, back towards their their stronger defended bases. So by the time we get to Okinawa, which um, I think the uh, there's a there's a movie that they did recently on Okinawa about a guy who was a conscientious objector uh, or a path pacifist um, and he went into the war as a medic so he wouldn't fire a weapon but um, he <coughs> saved a bunch of people in Okinawa because the thing about Okinawa is it was really rainy um, the the conditions were tough and they were essentially fighting uphill against a Japanese force that was kind of bunkered into the hill and it made it really difficult to uh, win. So yeah, Hacksaw Ridge. Thank you, Chris. Um, so anyway, it, it was one of those battles that kind of showed us this was not going to get easier. It was going to get harder. Um, and so we start <coughs> utilizing firebombing. And as McNamara kind of goes over in the documentary is he talks about the amount of firebombing that we were doing and kind of come, calls into question the morality of dropping the bombs if we've already been firebombing so much and destroying these cities so um, extensively, you know, what, what is the point of the firebombs? So that becomes kind of the, the question. And the other thing, especially for you guys with AP Euro, is you want to be able to have um, a concept or at least an idea for yourself around the morality of dropping the bomb, but also the result of dropping the bomb. So when you drop the bomb, it's one thing to um, think about how uh, the Americans are doing this, the, the different reasons for doing it, first of all, um, and then the international politics that are involved with it as well. Um, as far as ethics being involved in the way the Japanese military was fighting, the question is probably no, they were fighting to win. Um, and that becomes the ultimate question is if one group is doing something that you think is immoral, does that give you the moral high ground to now do something you feel might be immoral? So now it becomes kind of a, a moral question of what is the amount of morality that you're willing to take into the war and or should you just take an approach of we're going to do whatever we have to do in order to win, no matter what uh, the consequences might be. Um, you know, even if that means killing one to two million civilians in the process, like, is that a, is that okay? Because the Japanese targeted civilians first and the Japanese were fighting what we considered a relatively immoral version of war, then does that give us the uh, moral high ground to do the same thing. So that, I mean, those are great questions. And honestly, those are questions that you kind of have to decide for yourself. That's not something that I'm going to tell you uh, is right or wrong. Um, so when we started firebombing, we specifically did target cities. General LeMay, like he said to McNamara, said, look, um, we were 
going to just end this war as quickly as possible. It's kind of the same thing that I think we've talked about in class before where, um, I don't know if I've talked about him before, but you guys know General Sherman and the Civil War? Chris probably does, Chris. Um, <laughs> General Sherman was the one uh, who was responsible for, um, yeah, burning <laughs> burning all the way to the sea. So you're, um, <clears throat> he's <laughs> taking over city after city and just burning them down. Um, right. And so when he actually, I think it was when he got to um, Atlanta, the mayor comes out and goes, hey, uh, save the city. We surrender. And, and Sherman basically says, no. Um, he says, war is cruelty. Uh, war is cruel. And he just burns the city to the ground. Um, and it becomes this underlying factor that, you know, in, in some men's minds, like a, like a Curtis LeMay or like uh, Sherman, winning was the only option and how you did it didn't matter. Now, obviously, in, in history, you can take a stance that there is a way to win without doing that. But then again, you have to be able to justify if it was possible to do so. So that's kind of going to be what your atomic bomb um, assignment is going to be centered around. <coughs> as long as firebombing or as far as firebombing goes, um, Tokyo was the biggest one. Uh, we killed 130,000 people in one night, essentially, with firebombing Tokyo, which is more than both atomic bombs combined. Um, so it's extremely devastating. If you look at um, what actually took place in regards to the numbers, it it's kind of dwarfs the atomic bombs, firebombing in general. Um, and I think that that is pretty important to say. The other thing is, you know, you don't want to be, well, we, we firebombed the Japanese and we would never do that to the Germans. You don't want to bring that in because that's, first of all, it's not accurate. Um, we did firebomb the Germans. And, um, you know, some people make the argument, well, you know, we only firebombed certain types of German cities and we didn't target populations. We targeted rail and communications. And I think that that's a bit of a stretch, but it is... Some historians have made the argument that the firebombing of Japan was inherently racist compared to the firebombing that we did in, in Europe. And I think that that's something that you can decide for yourself. I'm not going to try to decide that for you, but um, it is what some historians have put out there. <coughs> now, as far as the atomic bomb is concerned, um, the actual bomb itself is developed... Um, kind of with the recommendation of Einstein, but then he removes himself, sorry, he removes himself from the process. And the one who is going to be tasked with this is Oppenheimer, who has his own, uh, one of the things that you guys could probably do if you have any free time is if you, if you find any documentary around Oppenheimer, he's, he's a fascinating person. Um, but the actual creation of the bomb was such a secret project. They created like their own city of chemists and physicists that came together to create this bomb. And what we actually found is that, um, Lucas, you have no free time. That sucks. Um, so in, uh, what we actually found was that the bomb itself is really simple. Um, the actual creation of the bomb is essentially a, a case that's about six feet wide um with a what would be essentially like a, a rifle on one side the um the nuclear material is the thing that's difficult um and 
once but once you've achieved the the uh, nuclear material that you need essentially all we're doing is firing a, a bullet into that material and, and creating that um, explosion and and it's incredibly powerful so I'm going to show you guys uh, another quick video um, about the effect of the atomic bomb and this one's on history.com so again I have to pause my podcast because I don't know what they're gonna or if they're gonna be okay with me showing it on here but um, let me move this around can you guys even see the the people bar that's on my screen like, do you see the people up here? Or no, you just see the... Um... Yeah, do you see the row of people up there? Oh, okay. Okay. <coughs> so, the initial blast kills uh, about 70,000 people. And um, the death rates climb as the years go on. Now, as far as what we did in dropping the bomb. First of all, <clears throat> we sent two planes, not one. We sent a, a second plane with scientists behind to, to essentially watch um, and observe what was going to happen. We also targeted cities that had not been firebombed yet. So we wanted to make sure that these were targets that were relatively clean, uh, for the best way to put it, I guess, because we needed to see how devastating it was. Um, the actual uh, atomic bomb itself was um, obviously the blast radius is pretty big and I'm going to show you some of the blast radius stuff in here. Um, but for a lot of the Japanese, the atomic bomb was impressive in that it was a single bomb, but it wasn't significantly different than the actual firebombing that we were already doing. So <clears throat> there is a, a situation where we have to kind of take it in the way that the Japanese looked at it. And for them, it was like, this is kind of business as usual. Um, for some of them, obviously, <clears throat> this would change over time because the radiation effects are so drastic. Um, <clears throat> but here's a couple of pictures of the, uh, um, the bomb and its effects. One of the things that the bomb does is it, it essentially um, explodes above the ground um, to get the most amount of impact and then it can spread <clears throat> as wide as possible. So um, when we look at the actual effect um, on the target, its best effect is if it explodes high above the ground um, and can go as far as possible and if there's no significant wind, um, which can also affect the way that the uh, the target was supposed to be taken out. So we picked a couple of the targets we picked based on a lot of those circumstances. Um, so we, no, we don't charge, none of the military leaders on the side of the Americans were charged with anything. Um, MacArthur later is removed from uh, his position once he wants to nuke China. He actually, at one point, decides that the best way to win the Korean War was to nuke China. And um, Eisenhower, who was the president at the time, kind of thought that was a bad idea. So he fired him at that point. But uh, other than that, um, no, there, there wasn't any significant um, people being brought up on war crimes, except for the Nazis, who, of course, uh, we'll, we'll talk about when we get to the Nuremberg trials uh, later. 
As far as Nagasaki was concerned, Nagasaki was actually not our our first choice, or sorry, our second choice. Um, it was a backup plan in case the first choice, which I, I can never remember what our first choice was, um, didn't have the right temperature and wind conditions. So we switched to Nagasaki because again, it's a different bomb. So the first bomb is uh, uranium, the second bomb is plutonium, and we were also sending scientists in both cases to see which explosion was bigger. We found that they were essentially the same. Um, so there, there's not a significant difference between the two, but very similar to uh, the death rates for sure. Um, hold on. Uh, yeah, Colty, what's up, bud? So between both bombs, uh, it, if you look at the initial impact, we killed about 150,000, give or take. It's somewhere between 120 and 150, depending on whose numbers you look at. And unfortunately, if you look at different numbers, you're going to get significantly different estimates. The, the Red Cross has an estimate, the Japanese have an estimate, and we have an estimate, which of course are all very different. Um, based on the narrative that people are trying to push. So anyway, here's what the bomb looks like from um, the air. Uh, on the left is Hiroshima, pre-attack and post-attack. You can see it probably better on the right with Nagasaki. Um, you know, you obviously see a city and then it, clearly the city is kind of no more. The thing that gets me when I watch the documentary um, about the firebombing is that the firebombing looks from a devastation perspective incredibly similar. Um, while obviously the atomic bomb is bigger and, and the effect is, uh, for lack of a better term, the effect of an atomic bomb is, is incredible. It's awesome. Its effects are also incredibly devastating. Um, but uh, when, when you look at what the achievement was, the guy who actually um, created it, Oppenheimer, once he did, he, he's the one who said, and I think I have it in here, um, he quotes this uh, Hindu proverb that says, I became death, the destroyer of worlds, which is kind of his way of uh, kind of trying to cope with the fact that he had created something that was so incredibly devastating. Um, but let me give a couple more things that you need to write down as far as notes are concerned. Um, and then I'll uh, give you some directions around the assignment that you guys have. So first, um, why do we drop the bomb? First, Truman didn't know much about it. Uh, so if I were writing something down, I would just put, this was FDR that knew mo most of what was going on and Truman was kind of just walked into a situation he didn't know a lot about. Remember, FDR died in office. So when, um, when we see that switch from FDR to Truman, you see that a lot of the possible mistakes that Truman makes is because he didn't know as much of what was going on. Um, remember that the, the actual Manhattan Project was incredibly secret. So until they actually had it, um, Truman probably didn't know much about it. He did know it was big. Um, he did know that we only had two. So one of the things that people didn't know, the Japanese didn't know specifically, was that we had dropped everything we had. We wouldn't have fissionable material or the, the material that we needed um, to drop another one if we wanted to. We, we dropped both of what we had. We dropped one in the desert to see if it would work, and we dropped two in um, on Japan. The other thing is Russia. So Russia had promised us that 
we were going to, or they were going to join the war in September. And so we were trying to end the war in August, um, as soon as quick, as soon as possible. It is very possible that we dropped the bombs for two reasons. One, to protect American soldiers from crossing the beaches of Tokyo, because obviously there was a, there were estimates at the time that we could lose upwards of 100,000 American soldiers if we did actually invade um, mainland China or mainland Japan, which those estimates are possible. I, I don't think it would have been that high. Japan was kind of on its last gasp. It would have been hard for them to get to that point. But for the most part, it, those are the estimates that we were working on and the estimates that Truman was working on. Um, Russia was going to get involved. One of the things we didn't want to happen was what happened with Korea. So obviously the Korean War, which happens in the 50s, is kind of this situation where we have to split Korea between North and South. And even to this day, North Korea is kind of, you know, the black hole of the of Southeast Asia and South Korea is thriving. Um, and it's mostly because of the economic situations in both countries. Uh, I think that it's important to recognize that this is not a simple decision to drop the bomb. Um, I think that Truman, probably in my own opinion, Truman made the, the decision based on the fact that is this going to end the war quicker? He probably does um, make that decision because he, think he thinks it's going to end the war quicker. And again, the last thing we didn't want to do is have Russia join the war in September and then Russia make its way down from the north of Japan and then essentially have to split Japan pretty much like we splitted Korea. So um, that that was one thing. And what we had had done with Germany, because in Germany, we also split Germany up and give Russia part of it. Um, the U.S., France and Britain get part of it. So there is a... Um, an argument to be said that we're doing this because uh, we want to make sure um, we want to make sure that Russia doesn't get involved and that they surrender to us. Um, now, to be holistic on this, uh, when it comes to what the Japanese were already willing to do, they in May were offering surrender, but with the condition of having and keeping their emperor. Um, remember when we talked about the beginning of the war and the fact that the Japanese were very tied up into this worldview that the emperor was a divine being and that he, he losing the emperor was very difficult, especially for their worldview. So it's very possible that they were never going to surrender without keeping their emperor. Now, we were under the impression that we needed both Germany and Japan to surrender with unconditional surrender. So I would also write that down, um, especially when you're doing the thing. What is sad is that even after dropping both bombs, they surrender with the condition of keeping their emperor. And, at, and so we don't actually get unconditional surrender. We get the surrender they were willing to give us in May. So they don't actually change their terms of surrender because of the bomb itself. Um, so, you know, when, when you start looking at some of the documents and um, that's what I'm going to go over with you real quick is kind of what, what your uh, assignment here is. So on Google Classroom, I have a assignment for you. And wow, someone already turned it in. That's impressive. Uh, the 
A-bomb document, obviously it has a lot of reading, sorry. Um, but it's all of the stuff going on around the atomic bomb. Should we make a bomb? Here's what we know about it. Um, and then there's some thoughts around Truman and why he thought he should drop the bomb. Um, all that kind of stuff. So this is all the background information. What you're going to do in this chart is essentially chart down the pros and cons of dropping the, dropping the bomb. Now you need evidence for both. So you want to put evidence of what is the pros of dropping the bomb? What are the cons of dropping the bomb? And how, I would say three to four pieces of evidence for both is what you need. Um, the prompt here is evaluate the extent to which the dropping of the atomic bombs and firebombing brought about the end of the war in the best way possible. So obviously this is a bit of a um, moral question because, and, and this is where it is uh, kind of up to you in deciding what type of morality you believe in. Do you believe it's moral to drop a bomb and kill 100,000 people if it comes with ending a war? Or is it immoral because the act of dropping that bomb in and of itself is immoral? So it becomes kind of in your own self, how can you decide um, what you believe is moral? Um, and, and you need to use that evidence to do it. And then you're going to, of course, do your guys' favorite things. And that's create a contextualization and thesis statement. Um, now, as far as, you're welcome, Bryn. Um, as far as the uh, rubric here, I actually have a rubric for you. It's simple. You get one point for the pros and evidence and analysis, one point for cons, one point for contextualization, and one point for a thesis. So um, I'll just grade it off of that kind of relatively simple rubric. Does that make sense? Um, do you guys have any questions for me? I'm going to sign off in about five minutes. So if you have questions, go ahead and ask them. Let me stop the recording and then...